Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, saying, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them, Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. And so Don read this morning from the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's only 16 chapters. So if you want a quick reading of Jesus' story, you can read the 16 chapters of Mark. But not only is it the shortest Gospel, it is also believed by many scholars to be the very first Gospel that was written ahead of Matthew, ahead of Luke, and ahead of John, which was last. Nevertheless, it was foundational for Luke and Matthew. They often used material from Mark and expanded it in their Gospels. Mark starts this way, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in this Gospel, we're going to hear the lion's roar. That is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, roaring to his disciples, rebuking them in the heat of the moment. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Open our eyes that we may see your word. Open our ears that we may hear your voice. Open up our hearts that we may receive Jesus, our Savior. And open up our hands that we may serve the risen Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, back in the day in the ancient church, they took those four Gospels that I talked about earlier, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they attributed living creatures to each one of them, living creatures that are found in the book of Ezekiel. And the four living creatures were a man, an ox, an eagle, and a lion. And for uh, the book of Matthew, it was a man. For the book of Luke, it was an ox somehow, some way. And for John, it was the soaring eagle. But for Mark, it was a roaring lion. 
Mark was represented as a lion. And so Lamar Williamson Jr. says this. He says, Mark is a lion, strong and tough. And Mark starts out right in chapter 1 with the roar of John the Baptist. And uh, then he goes straight on to the Jesus story where we hear the roar of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, just like the lion, you know, the king of the jungle, the king of all the beasts. Uh, Jesus is the king of all kings. And when the story starts, Jesus appears as a tame lion, like a, like a gentle lion resting in the shade over at the Seneca Park Zoo. Any of you ever been over there, Seneca Park Zoo? Or have any of you watched The Lion King? Here, when we first start our account, Jesus is Simba, the cozy cuddly cub Simba. He starts out gentle, but he increases in volume to become a roaring lion. He starts out with this tame Simba-like question. Who do people say that I am? That's an important question. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples answered in unison. It was as if all 12 of them spoke together in one voice because they say, some that is, some people, others, say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But wait for just a moment because the questions come closer to home. Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? It's a question all of us need to ask ourselves at one point in another. You know, what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Not what others say that Jesus is, but who do you say that Jesus is? So Peter, Peter wasn't afraid. He was bold. In fact, um, if you go through the Gospels, you often see Peter taking the lead. He was a strong leader. And so he said, you are the Messiah. A strong statement. In other words, Jesus is the Christ, the one anointed to be king, like I talked earlier about the lion, king of the beasts. Jesus was the king of kings. As Douglas Hare explains, in ancient Israel, kings were anointed with oil during the coronation ceremony. Now, Jesus must have been satisfied with Peter's reply because he warned them, don't tell anybody about it. Keep it a secret, at least for now. Wait, later on the truth would be revealed to the crowds, but at this time, only the disciples needed to know. It was not yet the appointed time to go to Jerusalem and the cross. In fact, when this occurred, and you heard Don read about Caesarea Philippi, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Well, this was a town way in the northern part of Israel, on the lower slopes of Mount Hermon, even 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So this was a location that was distant from Jerusalem. It was distant from the cross to the south. But Jesus had the cross on his mind. As this was the first of three passion predictions in the book of Mark. Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. The words are repeated as if to drive the point home. He was miles from the skull-shaped hill Golgotha, but yet Jesus had the cross on his mind. But when Peter said, you are the Messiah, or you are the Christ, 
he might have had a different understanding of what that meant. He might have had a misconception of what it meant to be the Christ. And Jesus wanted to correct any sort of misunderstandings that Peter or the other disciples might have had. So he explained to them how he understood himself and what his mission was. And his mission was described somewhat like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Powerful, isn't it? Isaiah 53, three through five. So as a good rabbi, as a good teacher, Jesus put his students, the disciples, down and said, I'm going to teach you what it means to be the Christ. I'm going to teach you what it means to be the Messiah, the suffering servant. And here we can listen to the lion's roar go up and go up a little bit in volume as it increases in intensity and gets just a little bit louder. Then Jesus began to teach them that he must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Did you hear that? Undergo suffering, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. And Peter protested. Of course, his initial reaction was to protect his friend, to prevent his death, and he took, um, he took protest to these words. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Could you imagine the audacity of Peter to rebuke Jesus? To say, listen, Jesus, I'm going to tell you which way this should go. I'm going to be the boss of you. Now when Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, this is where I hear the lion's roar starting to rattle the windows, starting to rumble. And the lion's roar increases in intensity like, over at the Seneca Park Zoo where the lion comes to life and all of a sudden they make a great sound and the little children go crying to their moms and dads. Jesus said to Peter, he rebuked him, get behind me, Satan. That's intense, isn't it? What a harsh accusation. Get behind me, Satan. What a roar, what a rumble. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And of course, we can understand Peter. Can't we imagine being in Peter's shoes? He wanted to protect his friend. He wanted to prevent his death. He wanted to keep his buddy, his rabbi, his Jesus alive. He didn't want him to die. The Lenten practice, this second Sunday of Lent, is the Ignatian Gospel Contemplation. And there's this insert in your bulletin. And this type of prayer involves imagination. And I imagine, I wonder, what would it be like to be there? To listen to the roar of the lion? What would it be like to hear Jesus rebuking Peter? What would it be like to see Jesus physically take Peter and say, don't get in front of me, get in back of me? 
I'm the leader, you're the follower. What would it be like to see Jesus turn red with rage and shout with anger and rebuke at Peter? I wonder what it would be like to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to see Jesus prepared to pounce on Peter like a predator on prey. I wonder what the disciples must have been feeling. What were their emotions? Were they shocked? Were they surprised? Were they fearful? Were they afraid? Did they shrink away? Imagine your response to Jesus. Would you comprehend his accusation? Get thee behind me, Satan. Would you stubbornly stand there with arms crossed? Would you resist his difficult demands? May we not be the ones standing in the way of God's purposes. Like Peter, Peter was the one who stood in the way of God's purposes, and that's why Jesus rebuked him and called him Satan. Such a harsh accusation. Realize that Satan is the tempter, and Peter here is tempting Jesus. He's attempting to stop Jesus. It's a temptation to take the easy way out. Would the one who walked on water, would the one who calmed the stormy sea take the easy way out? We know that there were no shortcuts with Jesus. He was willing to go against the grain instead of just going with the flow. The Son of God revealed that he must undergo great suffering. In other words, it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to follow the Father's will. It was a divine necessity in order to accomplish salvation for humanity. The hard way went through the cross, not around the cross. Avoiding crucifixion was exactly the opposite of embracing his divine destiny. So Peter was called Satan basically because it was a devil of an idea. No wonder Jesus rebuked him with such a thunderous roar. Jesus' roar continued as he called the crowd to join the shocked disciples. They, you know, the crowd needed to hear this too. It wasn't just the 12. It wasn't just Peter and John and James and Andrew and the gang. Beyond the 12, the crowds needed to hear this too. So Jesus invited the crowds and said this, if any of you wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Did you hear those three things? Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That's a tough word, isn't it? It's a difficult thing that Jesus roars to the crowd. It's all about a cross-shaped life. A fancy word for cross-shaped is cruciform. A cruciform life is one that summarizes the path of a disciple. And for the early Christians in the first century, following Jesus was never easy. It was extremely difficult. They faced religious persecution, intense religious persecution, especially those in Rome. The other day I was watching something on TV and they showed a picture of the Roman Colosseum. And it's still preserved to this day to some degree. And I thought to myself, this was a place, one of the places where persecution of Christians took place. 
They faced political persecution from the Roman Empire. Their loyalty to Jesus flew directly in the face of their allegiance to Caesar. The empire demanded that they confess, Caesar is Lord, instead of confessing, Jesus is Lord. They were stoned to death. They were burned at the stake. They were put to the sword. Sometimes they were even crucified. Legend has it that Peter was crucified, but when they came to the cross that they prepared, his persecutors prepared for Peter, he said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord, so hang me upside down. Following the Savior means giving up our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean giving up our lives literally, but all of us who come to Christ must die to self so we can live for Christ. It's this dramatic change of perspective. Now, there are still modern-day martyrs in some countries where persecution is great. We have religious freedom in this country, and it's a great luxury. But there are other countries where they're not quite as fortunate, like communist China or Saudi Arabia, where Islam is the dominating religion. Think of the difficulties they encounter in those places. One modern-day martyr of the 1900s was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Any of you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a Lutheran pastor who spoke out against Adolf Hitler, and he spoke out against the Nazi regime. As a result, the Nazis put him in a concentration camp, and just before World War II ended in 1945, the Nazis hanged him and put him to death. A few years before he died, Bonhoeffer wrote a Christian classic, The Cost of Discipleship. And be aware that Dietrich paid the price and knew the cost. In that incredible book, there's an incredible quote. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Should we put that on our sign outside? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die? Would that be attractive to the passers-by? Would would that attract faithful followers of Jesus, like a bee to honey or a moth to a light bulb? For Bonhoeffer, it meant physical death. But for many of us, the death demanded by God is spiritual. Believers, you are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Followers, you are dead to selfishness, but alive to selflessness. Disciples, You're dead to the old self since you are a new creation living for Christ. There was a reformer who lived in the 1500s named John Calvin. And John Calvin understood that self-denial was the central point of being a Christian disciple. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, wrote this. We are not our own. Therefore, neither our reason nor our will should predominate in our deliberations and actions. We are not our own. Therefore, let us not propose it our end to seek what may be expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Therefore, let us, as far as possible, forget about ourselves and all things that are ours. On the contrary, we are God's. To him, therefore, let us live and die. We are God's children. Therefore, let his wisdom and his will preside in all of our actions. 
We are God's children. Towards him, therefore, as our only legitimate end, let every part of our life be directed. Now, a preacher's job has often been misunderstood. What is my job to come up to you and say, you're okay, they're there, it'll be okay, and pat you on the back? Someone once wrote that a preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted, but afflict the comfortable. Are we too comfortable in our padded pews? Is our life with Christ just way too easy? Now, I'm not saying that we don't have people here who suffer. Physical suffering and human misery on this side of heaven is far too common. A lot of us go through illnesses and injuries and difficulties. That's not what I'm speaking about. What I'm talking about is suffering for the cause of Christ. What I'm talking about is persecution and suffering for the cause of the kingdom. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that North American Christianity, with all its freedoms, has become too easy, too comfortable, pain-free. It's a comfy, cozy Christianity. It checks a box by showing up on Sunday mornings, but it doesn't embrace the cruciform life that impacts every minute of our existence. What will this look like for you? Will being a Christian cost you something? Will you have to make any sort of sacrifices? Or has it already cost you something? Has it caused some suffering or sacrifice in your life? When the Holy Spirit comes roaring into your life, he demands absolutely everything. It's like a home invasion. And when the lion of the tribe of Judah comes roaring into your life, he doesn't just want one room, the guest room in the house. He wants the whole house. He's greedy that way. He wants everything. When the roaring lion invades your house, he wants the whole thing. Now your life belongs to him. It's in his hands. Sometimes we misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. We think that it means embracing certain theological truths that are in the Bible. And that's part of it. But it's mainly about being a follower of Jesus. It's mainly about being a disciple of Jesus. And being a disciple means that we'll need to take up our cross. The primary difference is discipleship. Jesus puts demands on his disciples. The Spirit inspires you to follow your fearless leader, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, our King Jesus. Now I've mentioned different lions here. I've mentioned the lion over at the Seneca Park Zoo. Haven't been there since I was a kid. I'll have to get back there. I mentioned Simba in The Lion King. But now I'll mention another lion, the lion from the Wizard of Oz. Do you remember him? What did he need in the Wizard of Oz? Courage, very good. You had the Tin Man, the Lion, Dorothy, Toto. What was the third one again? Scarecrow, yeah. You know the story better than I do. Well, the lion lacked courage. He was a cowardly lion who was afraid. He needed courage. And we need courage too. We need the courage that comes from above. We need to be filled like a lion with a courageous Holy Spirit. For God doesn't call us to be cowardly cubs. He calls us to be courageous lions for Jesus Christ. And we all need courage, boldness, to preach the good news 
even when it's not popular to do so. Some may accept it, just soak it up like a sponge. However, others may take the good news and reject it and say, no thanks, not for me. I don't want any part of it. In the process of rejecting the gospel, they might reject us too. In pushing the gospel aside, they might push us aside too. So that feels like a risk. It's risky business. It takes some courage. But despite that reality, we persist. Nevertheless, we look carefully for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. God loves them and Jesus died for them. And he died for you and me too. The Spirit empowers us to live a cross-shaped, cruciform life, fully dedicated to Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's pray.